Art, you're right. Uh, all of these songs take me back 30 years to little Calvary Baptist Church where we gathered with a few saints and sang some of these really delightful songs. They really, they really encouraged my soul. You lie! That's what South Carolina Representative Joe Wilson yelled out in the middle of President Obama's 2009 health care speech before a joint session of Congress. It was an amazing breach of political decorum. Those things are not done. They should not be done. Also demonstrates the depth of the divide, philosophical divide, that we as a nation are presently experiencing. That kind of an outburst also points to the lack of morality in our public political discourse as a people. These kind of things shouldn't happen. They shouldn't happen. A little over a week ago, I was in Springfield, Illinois. It was for a pastor's convention. While I was there, I had a free afternoon and was able to go to the Lincoln Museum. If you ever have opportunity, by the way, to get to Springfield, Illinois, I recommend that you plan at least one full day for your time there. There was so much to see that I was unable to see, presidential library and, and so forth. This is the hometown, of course, of Abraham Lincoln. So I was able to spend an afternoon in the Lincoln Museum, fascinating place. There was one particular exhibit in the museum, though, that really captured my attention. It was a whole room given over to the public debate that arose in conjunction with his election. By really any serious measure, Abraham Lincoln is now considered, if not the greatest, certainly maybe number two of the greatest presidents in the history of the United States. But it wasn't always that way. I hope you know that. In fact, just the opposite. When this man was elected to office, this nation was deeply divided. He won. There were four candidates for presidency that year, and he managed to garner the most votes, although he is the, pres the only president or the president serving with the fewest amount of popular votes in our history. He entered into office with bitter opposition. And in this particular room in the museum as I was there, there, there was just an exhibit where the, the amount and the intensity of the hatred 
But this man was put on display. The newspapers of the day were brutal to him. Not just in the south, but in the north as well. Regularly, they used adjectives like this to describe Lincoln. A usurper. A tyrant. A bigot. King. Gorilla. Ugly. Foolish. Stupid. A devil. They mocked his appearance. They mocked his manners. They mocked his intelligence. They mocked his accent. And they mocked his manhood. It was an embarrassment to me to read the diatribes that were pronounced against this man. Shocking. And what made it even more shocking, I think, was that this is at a time in the history of our nation when the majority of people went to church. These were church-going people who would write these things and say these things. They hated him. Hated him. And that just begs the question for me. How do we as Christians engage in political discourse? How do we do it? Or do we do it at all? What are the God-defined limits on what we say and what we write about those with whom we have profound disagreements? In terms of public policy. Or maybe this question. Should our speech materially differ from those who are unredeemed and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Should there be an ability to detect between what we say, what we write, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the rest of the world who does not know Him and does not love Him right. Should there be a difference? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. So we return again to the practical outworking of the Christian life with regard to our relationship to our government. I've entitled this whole chapter. I, I, get, I got one creative sermon title and so I'm staying with it. Sermon titles are the hardest, I believe one of the hardest things to write well. And so I got a good one and I'm staying with it. It's a manifesto for Christian citizenship. And you can just pencil it across Romans chapter 13. By the way, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1137 will take you to the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this chapter, so let me catch you up again. In broad strokes, there are three main elements to this chapter with regard to the Manifesto for Christian Citizenship. Verses 1 through 7 Paul's command to us is that we are to value our government, value our government. And then he breaks down what that means. We'll go back to that. 
verses 8 through 10, a Christian citizen is to love their neighbor. Love their neighbor. And then verses 11 to 14, the manifesto of a Christian citizenship says that we should restrain our flesh. So, value our government, love our neighbor, and restrain our flesh. That's the big picture of Romans chapter 13 under the manifesto for Christian citizenship. Let me just read the chapter for us to get our thinking going here. Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this... You also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Stop right there. This morning we are going to take the time to look at the last clause in verse 7 of this chapter. The last clause. And as we consider that, those words, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, we will find in it Paul's command to esteem our leaders. To esteem our leaders. We are to esteem them as a visible manifestation of the transforming grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the flow of thought. So as we are to esteem our leaders, kind of organized it for us. And by the way, it's on the back of your bulletin if you're looking for an outline. But I've kind of organized it this way. Esteem our leaders. We have a requirement to esteem, followed by the reasons to esteem, and then the resources to esteem. So the requirement, the reasons, the resources to fulfill this command to esteem our leaders. Paul has commanded here every single person, verse 1, without exception, believer and unbeliever alike, to be in subjection to the governing authorities because God is the one who establishes government. It is his good gift to mankind designed to keep people from killing one another in full-blown anarchy. It is the gift of God. It has been placed there for the public good. Verses 1 through 5, Paul develops that argument and we developed it as well. 
Beginning in verse 6 and into 7, Paul places two additional requirements upon the Christian. He talks about paying taxes there. Verse 7, he says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So he essentially puts a, a two-fold requirement on the Christian flowing out from the, the understanding that government is a good gift of God and we are to be in subjection to it. The two-fold requirement is to pay our taxes, verses 6, the first part of verse 7. And then what I want to focus on with us this morning is the command to esteem our leaders, the end of verse 7, to esteem our leaders. Now, to esteem, just for a a dictionary definition for us to get started, is to regard as of the highest order to think of with respect. So it's the whole issue of respect and thinking well of someone, to esteem them. Render to all what is due them. Give them what is their due. It is our obligation. It is our debt. To be discharged. What is the debt, Paul? It is to fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That is to esteem our leadership. That is the requirement. That is the debt. That is the obligation that accrues to us as citizens of this country. Now, as we work this out, here at the end of verse 7, what I, what I see here is kind of a two-fold way that we esteem those in leadership. That is, we respect their office and we honor their service. So we respect their office, we honor their service. Fear to whom? Fear. The word fear, the Greek word phobos, it, it's an interesting word. It's used all over the New Testament. And it, and it always, let me just establish this, it always carries with it a certain aspect of fear. Always has fear in it. So, so the translation fear is a, is a good translation. Over in verse 3, it's used there, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. That is that we're to be afraid if we are practicing evil behavior of the authorities. Why? Because they'll arrest you, they'll put you in prison up to and including cutting your head off. You ought to fear that. But it's also used in a in a sense where it's ratcheted down a little bit from that kind of fear, and it's translated awe, A-W-E, awe. For example, over in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, right there after Pentecost and the amazing conversion of 3,000 souls at one time, it says that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It's the same Greek word there. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So it can, it can mean awe as well. It can also mean a reverential respect. And that's, I believe, actually what Paul is talking about here in the end of verse 7. It can mean a reverential respect. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, or Peter says there, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Same Greek word. Your chaste and fearful behavior. 
there, the idea is of respect. And I think that it belongs here in the end of verse 7. And I believe the English Standard Version, the NIV, actually translate it that way for us. So kudos to them. God expects us to respect those in positions of leadership over us because God has placed them there. That's the big idea. God has put them there, and therefore our response to them is to be one of respect, even if we don't agree with them. We don't respect somebody just because we agree with them. That's not the basis of respect. Respect is built upon their relationship to God. Is it God who has put them in a position of authority? And if it is, then our fear of God generates respect for them. Consequently, here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Consequently, it is never right for Christians to speak disrespectfully of those who are in authority over us. You got it? That's it. That's the whole, I could close it up, but I'm not going to. And we could go home if we could only get a hold of that. It is never permissible. It is never right to speak disrespectfully of those who are in authority over us who have been put there by God. And, and that's parents to children. That's leadership in the church. That's leadership in civil society. It's every direction where God has put someone in leadership. We are to respect them. And it is never permissible to speak disrespectfully of them. It's as simple as that. Go back with me historically a little bit to the 1980s. Seems like only yesterday. Of course, some of you were or wasn't in the 1980s. But back to the 1980s. It was a really fascinating time in American politics because it was in the 1980s that conservative evangelicals entered into the political process really for the first time as any kind of organized group. It was called the moral majority. Remember that? The moral majority. That was the brainchild of Reverend Jerry Falwell, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. Those were very heady days for the church, for the evangelical church. Finally, the idea was a Christian voice would enter into the American political sphere. Evangelical leaders had unprecedented access to the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. They were begun to be invited to various meetings and policy discussions and, and lead prayer meetings. And all of this stuff was going on. And, and during that time, we were going to take the nation back for Jesus Christ. The encroachment of secularism had gone on long enough. Now we were going to take it back because we were, we were organized. And we had access to the levers of power. Then something terrible happened. The 1992 presidential election. In the 1992 presidential election, Bill Clinton... And Al Gore defeated George Bush and Dan Quayle. And the evangelical church went into a, a hand-wringing hysteria. Everything was coming apart. 
And the response, now that they were on the outside, no longer invited in, no longer called to the parties, no longer consulted, was they began to turn and attack the president and his wife. All kinds of hateful things were written and said about the Clintons. They were accused of all kinds of conspiracies. The level of angst and paranoia just continued to ratchet up. The world was coming to an end. It's disgraceful. It was disgraceful. Fringe groups began producing and marketing primarily within churches, all kinds of slanderous tapes and books accusing the Clintons of everything. You can imagine. I mean, the man was the Antichrist as far as they were concerned. And they hated him. They hated his wife. Beloved, no matter how much we disagree with someone, there's, there's no justification for these kinds of things. How can we, who have been transformed by the grace of God and claim to follow the Prince of Peace, how can we engage in such kind of behavior, such kind of speech? I mean, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of what? The heart. This is a heart issue. It's also a heart issue. Particularly speaking to a bastion of republicanism. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? Isn't that what is supposed to flow out of our lives? We who know the Prince of Peace? My brothers and my sisters, it should not be. It should not be that we engage in slander, hatred. We must respect their office. We must. Secondly, the requirement to esteem says that we must honor their service. The end of verse 7 again. Honor to whom honor. Render what is due them. Honor to whom honor. We have to respect their service. That is that they are giving themselves to the public good. This is a theological issue. This is, this is not an issue of political ideologies. Now, I understand reality, and I understand that, that government payrolls are swollen. Believe me, I understand these things. I also understand that government workers now, on average, make more than a comparable private industry employee in an equal position. I understand these things. But it doesn't give us the right. We don't have that right. God doesn't give it to us. They're servants, verse 6. Rulers are servants of God. Now, we went over this a few weeks ago. The, the origin behind this Greek concept is that people served as public officials at their own expense often. 
in the ancient world. And even in our own language, as we said, there, there's that sense we still have, at least it's a kind of a quaint sense of the public servant, the civil servant, right? So these concepts, although they're, they're fast disappearing, are still rooted in our own culture. Honor their service, Paul says. Honor their service. How do we do it? How do we respect and how do we honor the service of those in leadership over us? Let me give you some practical examples. First, we speak well of them. We speak well of them. That means we are to resist demeaning humor. We are to resist demeaning humor. I understand political humor, and I understand it can sometimes be pretty funny. And you know what? So can dirty jokes. Sometimes they can be really funny. But we're commanded by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4, that there is to be no coarse jesting to be named among us. We're not to engage in that kind of speech. So resist it. Just like you would turn away at the office from a dirty joke, turn away from political humor that is demeaning and disrespectful for those that are in authority over us. And by the way, you will then have opportunity to talk to someone about why you're so weird. It's called the gospel. Secondly, speak well of them first. Secondly, forgive their mistakes. They're human. Did you know that? Do you realize that public officials are human beings? They're not gods. They're human beings. And so we are to forgive their mistakes. People make honest mistakes. I do. You do. They do. Third, remember that you do not know all the facts behind their decisions. And therefore, Many times you are not in the place to make a full and informed judgment. You know, there are actually state secrets that they don't share with us. This is kind of common sense stuff, isn't it? It really is. We just forget it. We forget the fact that we don't know everything. And so why did they do what they did? There may be a good reason that we just don't know about yet possible give them the benefit of the doubt don't assume immediately their motives are evil and they're out to get us fourth thank them for serving now that's a novel idea go into the department of motor vehicles and when you wait in line and you finally get to the window and the clerk behind the window you know transact your business with you before you leave smile and say thank you then their coworker can pick them up off the floor when they faint. <laughs> I'd like to thank you for serving me today. Wow. That'll make you stand out. You know, I was... I don't know what the right word... It, I was on a series of flights a week or so ago getting back to the Midwest. And on one of the flights, there was, there was an army soldier. 
I know it's an army soldier because they get to wear their camis. But he came onto the flight, and the flight was mostly full by this time, and, and he came on, and he was coming down the aisle, and spontaneously people started. And it was just a few at first, and then pretty soon the whole plane is applauding. And I sat there, and I was applauding too, and I sat there, and I was just thinking about all of that, and I thought, how different that is from my youth. See, like many of you, I grew up in the Vietnam era. If a returning soldier had gotten on an airplane in the Vietnam era, first of all, they wouldn't have worn their uniform because they would have been afraid. They would have been spit on. They would have been called baby killers. Some would have thrown fake blood on them. I mean, I rejoice that our culture has at least come back from the brink with regard to that. But what I'm, what I'm advocating here is why wouldn't we also appreciate the service of other public officials? Paul would have us do this. He would have us do this. By the way, it was the uniform that we were applauding. You know that, don't you? Because none of us knew this guy. We don't know anything about him. He could be the nicest guy or the worst jerk you've ever met. It was his uniform that we were applauding. The requirement to esteem. Secondly, the reasons to esteem. There are really two reasons to esteem, neither one of which appear in this text. So we'll have to go elsewhere for this. We'll go elsewhere for this. First, I want to turn you back to the left, to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, page 1117. The first of the two reasons why we are to esteem those in authority over us is because of their position. I've kind of spoken of that, but let me just quickly illustrate it with a couple of passages here. So Acts chapter 23, just beginning in verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's kind of like biblical swearing. (laughs) And do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? The bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Ananias was a bad, bad, bad guy. His own people murdered him, by the way, a few years later. He was a bad guy. But that doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that God said that we are to do what? We are to honor the rulers of our people, not to speak evil of them. That is 
the point. The respect is due to this evil man, Ananias, not because of who he is, but because of the position in which God has placed him. It's their position. Turn to the right. Take you over to Act, or excuse me, to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five and verse twenty-three. The reasons to esteem leadership is because of their position. We saw that in Paul with Ananias. We see it here in Paul's treatment of the relationship between husbands and wives. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. What Paul says is that there is a statement of fact. There is a reality going on here. The reality, the statement of fact is the relationship of husband and wife within a marriage. And that is the husband is the head. Not the husband should be the head. Husbands be the head of your wife. No, husbands, you are the head. It is a position that God has put you in by virtue of the fact that you are a man. She is a woman and you are married. You are her head. What kind of head you are is a completely different discussion. But the reality of your headship exists, and it exists, by the way, not just for Christians. It exists for all men and women together in marriage. You are her head. Therefore, verse 33, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect, by the way, same, same Greek word translated fear. Let's see that she respect her husband. Why should a wife respect her husband? Because he's a really nice guy. Because he does such a fine job of loving her and serving her. Nourishing her and cherishing her. And if he doesn't, she's not to respect him. Actually, just the opposite. She is to respect him regardless of the fact that he is the biggest jerk around. And it's not because the respect lies in his his worthiness of it. It lies in the fact that he is her head. He's been established in that position by God. That's the point. The reason to esteem those in leadership over us is because God has put them there. It's because of their position. Whether they be bad rulers or whether they be bad husbands. Neither of which, by the way, God gives permission for. It's God who stands behind their appointment. Thus, we are to esteem them. Second reason is our testimony. The second reason we are to esteem those in leadership is our testimony. For that, you need to turn to the right, to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 13, page 1212, if you're using your pew Bible. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, that sure sounds familiar. Verse 15. Don't miss this. Verse 15, for such is 
the will of God. I wonder what God's will for my life is. Boom! Right here. Work on this one. And then you can worry about who you're going to marry, young men. You work on this one. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Wow. Wow. For the Lord's sake, that is for his reputation, for his glory, for his character that's on display. We are to submit ourselves. This is the will of God for us, because as we do this, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. What do the foolish men say? The foolish men say, you tell me you have a savior. You tell me that you are redeemed. You tell me that you are being changed in the image of Jesus Christ. I know a little bit about Jesus Christ, and I know a lot about you, and you don't look very much like him. And in particular, when we're around the coffee pot or the water cooler and we begin to talk about politics and it's obvious that you don't care for the current president and the speech that starts to pour forth from your mouth, you don't sound like Jesus Christ to me. You sound like the guy down the street whose heart's full of hatred. What kind of a savior do you serve? What kind of saved are you? By doing right. You may silence the ignorance of foolish men. People are looking for reasons to mock the faith. Let us not load the gun for them. Let us not supply just one more. Listen to me. Listen to me. We're citizens of an eternal kingdom. Isn't that true? Our blessed hope lies not here, it lies where? Yeah, that's right. You got it, Ernie. It lies there. It lies in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish His great millennial kingdom in which peace and prosperity will flow, in which unrighteousness will be done away with, in which the poor will be fed, in which war will be no more. doesn't lie in our current political systems. It never did. It never will. It cannot reading this past week an email from a missionary in South Africa. He said the following, speaking about the current state of America, and in particular, the evangelical church in America. He said, and I quote, America has so many luxuries that have become liberties, preferences that have become essentials, wants that have become needs. And I was pierced to the heart when I read that. We wrap up so much of what we understand about the Bible in our own political framework. And we get more exercised, more indignant, more passionate, more energized over political processes than we do about the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that should not be. Should not be. Be passionate. Yes. Vote your conscience. Yes. Be informed. Yes. Exercise your citizenship. Absolutely. But remember, it's not here. It's not here. It's there. That's what it's about.
the requirement to esteem, the reasons to esteem, finally, the resources to esteem. I know I put a heavy load on you this morning. I've been carrying it on my own shoulders. It was time to unload a bit. <laughs> Honey, how come you're so glum, she says. Because i got this sermon I need to preach. Now I make you glum. No, don't be glum. Don't be glum. The word wounds and the word heals. The word wounds and the word heals. Don't be glum. Be convicted. The resources. Back to Romans for that. Preach the whole book. That would be our resources. But I'm going to have to focus a little bit here. So I'm going to take you to chapter 6, page 1130. Those few Bibles. Listen, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have changed. We have changed. Isn't that true? We have become spiritually united with him. His death, our death. His life, our life. This is the gospel. Verse 2, chapter 6. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Stop there. Paul is saying, wait, wait a minute. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to be reminded of something. And that is, in, in our faith union with Jesus Christ, we spiritually died in his, his death. His, his crucifixion becomes ours. It shatters the bonds of sin. And in his resurrection to life, we rise to the newness of life. And the life of God himself now resides within us. Very practical terms. We don't have to behave like the unregenerate because we're regenerate. Think of it this way. Think back to your childhood when you used to work in fast food. By the way, I think fast food is good for all young people. It's a great apologetic for them to go on to make something of themselves. But think back to one of those fast food experiences you had or some other dismal job in which you had a boss who was very difficult to work for. Always on your case, always getting on you. Then it came up near the end of the summer and you quit. But then you go back to the restaurant, of course, right? And you walk back up to the counter and you begin to order whatever it is you're going to order. And the boss comes out and says, hey, get around here to the counter. Get that mop, get that floor washed, get in that bathroom and clean that thing. And you look at him and you say, I don't work for you anymore. You clean it yourself. You're not the boss of me. 
See, that's what happens with sin. That's what Paul's saying happens with sin. Used to be sin was the boss of you. You're in bondage. You're in slavery to sin. You have no choice but to obey its lust. But now in Christ Jesus, the very life of the living God resides within your heart. The chains have been shattered. You no longer have to obey. And so when sin comes calling, you tell him to get lost. Or more memorably, you shall not pass. <laughs> yeah, that was Romans 6. It's been a while ago. <laughs> well, what's the point? The point is. Is sin's power has been broken in our lives. We do not have to engage in hateful political speech. And we should not. We should not. And, and when we forget, we need to go back to the gospel to be cleansed over and over and over again. Romans 12. Take you there. Turn a few pages. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen, we've been transformed. We're not the same anymore. Our mind needs to be renewed. My mind needs to be renewed, like all the time renewed. I need the gospel. I, didn't, I needed it not just 31 years ago. I need it all the time. I need to continue to preach it to myself that I am a new creature in Jesus Christ, that my sin was left there on that cross, nailed to the cross in Christ. I'm united with him as he lives the resurrection life. I live the resurrection life. I no longer am in bondage to sin. I am free in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so I urge you, verse 1, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and believe me, it is a mercy of God to be delivered from the slave market of sin. I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be, what? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable. And perfect. This is the power of Christ in me. This is the power of Christ in you. If you have come to him by faith. If you have repented of your sin. If you have turned from your sin. And fled to the cross of Christ. To grab hold and hang on. Saving faith. And even that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Listen, it's all of God. It's all of God from start to finish. It's not of me, it's not of you. It's all of God. Beloved, scriptures are exceedingly clear. Exceedingly clear. We must respect and we must honor our governmental leaders. There's no wiggle room here. Listen to me. The November election cycle has started. It starts earlier and earlier and earlier. It's on. And as we continue to approach these midterm elections, the decibels of political slander will continue to grow higher and higher and higher. The divisions, the deep divides within our country will become sharper and sharper. 
the political rhetoric will become more and more hateful. The willingness to compromise on anything will become increasingly separated one from another. We're not to be stoking those fires. We are not to be the ones who throw gasoline on the fire. We are not to one to repeat the innuendos, the rumors, the slanders. Listen to me. Don't pass on those emails. Don't do it. I've received some that are flat out slanderous. They're, they're not true. Let me let you in on a clue. You can't believe everything you read on the internet. Did you know that? Beyond that, you can't believe everything you see on the internet. There's this program called Photoshop. If you're not familiar with it, you should be. Because seeing is no longer believing. (laughs) People say all kinds of hateful things. Things that are flat out not true. But we get blinded by our passions. And we enter right in. Beloved, these things should not be. They should not be. We should not be seduced into participating in this kind of societal sin. And when we begin to take this command seriously, we will begin to act in a way that we are salt and light in our society. We will begin to pull it back from the brink. Do we want a civil war? Is that what we really want? Would we like our political differences settled at the point of a bayonet? One of the exhibits in the Lincoln Museum was an interactive map, like a video map, of the United States at the beginning of the Civil War. So the map starts and it shows the secession of the southern states and it shows the northern states of the Union. And then there's a little time calendar that starts clicking. It's all video. And you can see the movement of battles back and forth as territory is contested repeatedly. In the lower right hand, there's a casualty counter. It starts to go like this. And then it goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Until it's a blur. 